going to be in Colossians 2 this morning, and then I'm going to take a two-week study leave, as I do usually in January, and Pastor Stan is going to uh, be bringing God's Word to you the next couple of weeks, and then when I get back, we'll pick up in Colossians again. This morning, I want to study verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2. There should be an outline in your bulletin, and as usual, there are the printed messages. Feel free to grab one. I think they have a mustard-colored cover this week, and you can get one now or later if you'd like. And all of those are on the church website, and um, we're posting them now on sermonaudio.com, and there was actually first hour a group of about 15 or 20 Canadian uh, young people and their sponsors who had been down in Mexico ministering, and they found us on Sermon Audio, and that's why they were here, and they were on their way up to the canyon. So you can access the sermons there. Uh, Paul writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument for Even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless, I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. It's safe to say that we live in a time of unprecedented, widespread deception Thanks to the internet, this past year saw 750 documented uh, data breaches and the stealing of the information, private information, of 178 million Americans. That's more than half of our population had their private information stolen. When the identity thieves get your info, they can take your credit card numbers and print up phony cards and hit the ATMs or go shopping at your expense. Uh, They steal your social security number. They can file phony uh, tax returns in your name and get your tax refund before uh, you have a chance. Telephone scammers are preying on everyone. One of the most popular scams, especially on the elderly, is they pose as if they are members or uh, employees of the IRS, and they call and tell you that you owe back taxes, that unless you pay up quickly, uh, they're going to either confiscate your property or you will go to prison. Another popular scam is that they pose as employees of tech companies, and they call and tell you that your computer has a virus. And they need access to your computer to fix it. And, of course, through the access, they get all your private information and so on. And 
For a fee, of course, they offer tech support for a year, which gives them even further access into all of your stuff. Now, all of those scams, of course, and you read about them almost weekly in the paper here. Somebody's been bilked out of their money by some scammer. They cost people financially, but there's an even more serious kind of scamming and deception going on that can result in a person's eternal ruin. Satan has been employing his tactics of deception since the garden when he lied to Eve and said, you know, has God said, oh, you will not surely die. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3, the Apostle Paul calls attention to that. And he said, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Satan has used the false teaching of the cults to lead many away from the true gospel that the apostles preached. Uh, Invariably, the cult's main target is not pagan people. They're harder to reach. They prey on unsuspecting, untaught people in evangelical churches. And they use the Bible. They claim to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. I've read some of the literature of these cults. And if you're undiscerning, you'd say, wow, they sound like Christians. Um, But in reality, they deny the Trinity. They deny Jesus' deity. They deny salvation by grace through faith in Christ and his atonement. Um, And tragically, they're leading their followers into eternal damnation. Now, as we've seen in Colossians... false teachers were plaguing that church. As soon as there's a new church, these guys were only five years old or so in the Lord, in come the false teachers. And they probably had not yet gained many followers because Paul, in verse 5, says that he's still rejoicing to see their good discipline and the stability of their faith in Christ. (coughs) Excuse me. But these these wolves were mingling among the flock. They were looking for strays that they could pick off. And uh, so Paul is giving them a dose of preventative medicine, as in verse 4. He says, "I'm, I'm saying these things so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. So to be forewarned is to be forearmed and... Uh, Since the eternal destiny of of souls that Christ uh, loves are at stake, we have to be on guard. We have to be vigilant and heed Paul's counsel here. How do you avoid spiritual deception? Because it's happening. I've seen Christians and I've seen even pastors get sucked off into false doctrine. Paul is saying here, that we avoid spiritual deception by being committed to a loving, Christ-centered church. Now, before I go with that direction of things, let me mention, I toyed for a while with the idea of going a whole different direction with the sermon. And the, the Word of God is so rich, you can take things in different ways. Paul, in chapter 1, ended the chapter by talking about his ministry and 
how in verse uh, 28, he's proclaiming Christ, seeking to present everyone mature in Christ. And then in verse 29, he mentions how he was laboring, striving according to, to Christ's power, which mightily works within him. And in the Greek text, in, there's no, in the original, there's no verses and chapters. So in the very next verse, chapter 2, verse 1, he uses the same word striving. For some reason, they translate it differently. It's the word struggle. Um, and he says he has a great struggle on their behalf, which he goes on to describe. And so what I'm saying is you could take these verses and develop some vital uh, principles for ministry. And let me just list for you where I was thinking of going, and you can flesh it out yourself. But uh, here are six principles for ministry. Number one, having heartfelt love and concern for the spiritual well-being of the church. And that includes people Paul hadn't even yet met. Uh, second principle is prayer in all ministry. And I, I believe, as I'll explain in a moment, that Paul's struggle refers to his prayer life. Uh, number three, having a strong emphasis on teaching the truth, along with loving relationships in the church. Uh, fourth principle for ministry is being Christ-centered and Christ-exalting in all teaching, as he's the repository of all wisdom and knowledge. A fourth, uh, a fifth principle, warning newer believers about the danger of being carried away by these false teachers. And then uh, sixth principle, encouraging others to be disciplined and stand firm in Christ. So that's one way you could go. I'm going to look at it from the standpoint, however, of avoiding spiritual deception because I believe that is no less a threat today than it was in Paul's day. In some ways, it's more of a threat because with all the modern media, you can get it false teaching from so many different sources. Uh, first of all, <clears throat> to avoid spiritual deception, we have to recognize that it is a serious danger. Forty years ago, actually it was 41 years ago this month, um, Marla and I had just moved into an apartment in Dallas, and as we were going from our car to our apartment one night, we were mugged at gunpoint. And uh, I still have a scar on my hand from the gun sight as I fought with the, the attacker. But after that traumatic event, I never once got out of my car at that apartment without looking around carefully and making sure there's nobody around here that looks like he's going to mug me. Uh, I would look out the window at night, and I would see ladies standing out chatting right where we had had that experience, and they were totally oblivious to any potential danger. They just were out there chatting away like it was a safe place to be. Um, I, even to this day, do not go out in a public place at night without being aware. I just am looking around for suspicious people. Uh, because of that experience. Because if you're unaware of potential danger, you're a target. Now, the problem with spiritual deception is uh, the enemy doesn't come up with a gun and say, I'm going to lead you into false teaching. Follow me. That's not the way it happens. Satan is very subtle. He is very sly. Um, 
Paul warns in that second chapter, Second Corinthians eleven chapter, Satan disguises himself. He says as an angel of light, and his servants as servants of righteousness. And, and so Satan doesn't come in with his red suit and his horns and his pitchfork and a hideous laugh and say, "Would you like to follow me to hell? Here, follow me. I'll tell you the false stuff." No, that's not how it works. He comes saying, would you like light on some hard things? We've got truth that you haven't been taught. And his servants come along and they look like good people. Outwardly, they're moral and, and they're servants of righteousness. But as Second Peter 2 says, uh, inwardly, they are following their own lusts. And they are promising people freedom and they themselves are slaves of corruption. Jesus pictured them as wolves in sheep's clothing. You know, the wolf comes in in sheep's clothing, and the sheep go, hey, there's another sheep. No, that's a wolf. And you have to really be careful to see that's not a sheep. That's a wolf. Now, in our text, Paul warns about those, he says in verse 4, who would delude you with persuasive argument. And they were promising deeper knowledge of mysteries. Uh, They were promising secret wisdom that if you come in their circle, they'll enlighten you on how to have a better Christian life. That's always the appeal. But they're promoting a message that appeals to the flesh. Later in chapter 2, we'll see how they claim to have deeper philosophy than the apostles. Uh, They claimed to be more holy because they had rules. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, and so on. And Paul, at the end of the chapter, says, yeah, it seems like that would help you, but it doesn't. It's just outward religion, and it doesn't deal with the flesh. In fact, it feeds the flesh because they can pride themselves in how they keep all their rules. But, you know, it's just amazing the variety of false teaching going on. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I got, got a thing online. There's a group in Colorado, the land of potheads, um, and they're studying the Bible while they smoke pot. That's their key to understanding the Bible. And they interviewed these people, and they actually said, you know, we used to go to churches, and the Bible was kind of boring, And we never got anything out of it. But now that we smoke pot, we're gaining all kinds of insight into the Bible. But the kicker in the whole thing was an evangelical, supposedly, pastor is leading the group. And he's never confronted their drug abuse. You know, hang on, it's coming to Arizona. They're going to be voting on legalizing pot here. Um, But, you know, we've got the cults. They're active They come through our neighborhood regularly recruiting people, and they will tell you, oh, we have a strong family emphasis in our church, and we follow Jesus Christ. Um, There are, they claim to be, evangelical churches that meet in cocktail lounges, and everybody sips a cocktail and talks about the latest news of the day. There are seeker-friendly churches you can go to, And uh, they don't really preach the Bible. They may take off on a verse here and there. And they show movie clips, you know, to illustrate. And they give 
self-help messages, how you can succeed in this and that and the other. And they kind of present God as your good buddy, your life coach. And, of course, he never confronts us about sin because that's negative. Now, there's so many different false teachings going on. It's just incredible. And my, what I'm saying is this. If you're not aware of them, you're a sucker. You're, you're going to get drawn in by some of them. You have to be aware that stuff is out there. Then, secondly, to avoid spiritual deception, be committed to a loving church. Now, as I'll point out in the next point, that's not the only requirement, a loving church, because the cults use love to draw people in. Oh, we're a loving fellowship. And the, the most egregious example of that, I think, was back in the 60s. The children of God sent out their women to offer themselves to young men as a means of getting them into the cult. And um, I actually had a roommate who had trusted Christ through the leader of the children of God before the guy went off base. And so he was evangelical for a while. And then he founded this cult. And I haven't heard about him recently. I hope they uh, disintegrated. But anyway, they use love. But don't let that put you off. Love is essential in a church. It's, it's not a secondary thing. Uh, Paul here obviously shares his heartfelt love and concern for these people. He does the same in the letter to the Thessalonian Christians where he says, I'm like a nursing mother. I care for you guys. I, I'm like a, a caring father to you. He loved the people uh, in the churches who had come to Christ. And here in verse 2, he expresses his desire, or it may be a prayer. He says that their hearts may be encouraged, uh, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in the true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself. Now, that prayer or wish there reminds me of his prayer in Ephesians 3. For the believers there, he prays that that he, God, would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And then here's the love part, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the height or length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled up with all in the fullness of God. Now, did you note in both prayers, Paul connects um, spiritual apprehension with being part of a loving fellowship of Christians. It's when you're in a loving church that you're going to learn the love of Christ, is what he's saying. Uh, The late New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce observed, Paul emphasizes that the revelation of God cannot be properly known apart from the cultivation of brotherly love within the community. Or N.T. Wright, another New Testament scholar, explains, living in a loving and forgiving community will assist growth in understanding and vice versa. 
As truth is confirmed in practice, and practice enables truth to be seen in action, and so to be fully grasped. Now in our text, Paul gives us three qualities or marks of a loving church. First of all, a loving church is going to be a praying church. It's not directly stated, but every commentator I read, and I agree with them, uh, argues that Paul's great struggle that he mentions for these believers was a struggle in prayer. He was praying for them. He was chained up in a uh, prison in Rome. He couldn't go there, but he's praying for them. One thing to support that is when you get to chapter 4 and verse 12, Paul says that Epaphras is always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. And that uh, laboring earnestly is the verb form of the noun that is here. We get our English word agonizing by just taking it straight from the Greek. Agonizo is the verb. Um, And it was used of wrestlers. In a wrestling match, they're straining every muscle in their body trying to defeat their their opponent. In Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, Paul specifically calls this church to prayer when he says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving and praying uh, for us at the same time for us as well. Two things to take away from that. First of all, if you love people, you're going to pray for them. If you love people, prayer is the first thing you can do for them, to pray for them. Uh, You know, we all have loved ones, family who don't know Jesus. I hope you pray for them all the time that they'll come to faith. And, And I hope you pray through the church directory. I want to encourage Every one of you to do that. Our elders are doing that now in our elders' meetings. And you might think, well, I don't even know a lot of the people in the directory. Well, guess what? Paul didn't know these people. He says that. A lot of them, he's never seen them before, but they're on his heart. And so he's praying for them. And what will happen as you pray through the directory, and Linda's starting to put pictures in there. If yours isn't in there, please see her and she'll snap your picture and put it in there. Um, what happens is you pray for them and you go, oh yeah, yeah, that family, I don't really know them. And then you run into them on Sunday and you go, you know what? I prayed for you last week. How can I pray for you better? And it, it deepens the bond of love between us. And so pray through the directory. If you love people, you'll pray for them. And secondly, I think that word struggle implies prayer is not easy. If you just thought it was you that has a hard time praying, uh, welcome to the club. I struggle with prayer, okay? It is not easy for me. Uh, It just is a battle. And Paul says that. In Ephesians 6.12, he says, "We're, we're doing battle against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And battle is tough. Your mind wonders. A million things come up to divert you from praying. Just keep coming back to it. Fight the battle and and pray. So a loving church is a praying church. Secondly, a loving church practices heartfelt concern for one another. I think you just see that oozing out of the text. Paul is concerned 
for these people. And he says he wants their hearts to be encouraged as they're knit together in love. And true Christianity is a matter of our heart. It's not, hey, brother, good to see you, and then you don't care for him. In fact, you really couldn't care less about him. No, you really care on the heart level for people because they're your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it's not about, you know, keeping up an image or veneer of righteousness. It's about really caring about people, praying for people, wanting relationships to be right within the body. And then thirdly, a loving church seeks the highest good of each person. And that is namely to know Christ and grow in him. Up in verse 28, we saw that Paul's aim was to present every person mature in Christ. And what I'm saying here is the definition of love biblically is love seeks the highest good of the one loved. And what is the highest good for every person? Well, the highest good is that they be like Christ, that they truly know Christ and that they are conformed to Christ. And what that means is Sin destroys people. Invariably, when someone falls into sin, they're destroying themselves, but they're also destroying others in relationship. And so what that means is, if you love others and you see a brother or a sister in sin, you're it. You've got to go to them in a spirit of gentleness and prayer and say, Lord, Help me to restore this person. Or if you see a brother or sister and they're, they're kind of saying some screwy things about the Bible, again, you need to go to them and open the word and say, you know, you said this, but how do you square it with this? And help them get on track doctrinally. So to avoid spiritual deception, first of all, be aware of the danger. Secondly, be committed to a loving church. There's safety when you're inside the fold. And it's when you wander from the fold that the enemy picks you off. And then thirdly, to avoid spiritual deception, be committed to a Christ-centered church. Um, In chapter 1, we've seen how Christ-centered Paul was. He tells about how Christ is the creator of the universe, how he is the head of his body, the church, how God is working toward Uh, summing up everything in Christ. He says that uh, the riches of, of the glory of the mystery that God has now revealed in verse 27 is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The whole chapter is focused on the supremacy of Christ. And here in verse 2 and 3, and he's probably countering the, the false teachers who said they had secret knowledge and they had mysteries and they had wisdom. Paul comes back to that theme and he says that he wants these believers, verse 2, to attain to all the wealth that comes from a full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then in verse 5, he commends what he calls their good discipline and the stability of their faith in Christ. So, Christ and the gospel have to be at the center of a solid church that will keep us from error. Uh, Just five things, and I'll go through these pretty rapidly. 
first of all, a Christ-centered church is a Bible-centered church. You can't divorce it. A Christ-centered church is a Bible-centered church because the Bible focuses on Christ. All of the Bible tells us about him. The Old Testament points us ahead to Christ. The Gospels tell us directly about Jesus' ministry. The epistles point us back to Christ and explain his death and resurrection. And the final book of the Bible is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. I just finished, as I think I mentioned, reading a book by Alec Motyer. This is cool. This guy is a 90-year-old man, and he just came out with his latest book. Isn't that neat? He's 90, and as you read it, it's clear he's a Hebrew scholar. He's written many commentaries on the Old Testament. And the thing that was cool in reading this book is his love for Jesus just comes through the text. I mean, I'd love to meet this old guy, 90 years old, walking with the Lord, just in love with Jesus as a scholar, And he writes this. He says, without the Old Testament, we could not know Jesus properly. He adds, without the Old Testament, we would not understand our New Testament properly. And so if a church is not centered on the Bible, it's not centered on Jesus Christ. And if a church is not teaching the Bible, it's not equipping the members to stand against false teaching. I really believe in, as you know, teaching through the Bible consecutively. If you just pick and choose and teach topically, you can pick all the, cherry pick all the the, uh, nice parts. But the Bible has some hard parts. And when I teach through it consecutively, I can't dodge those. I just have to. And, you know, you say, yeah, but those are kind of threatening. I mean, they, they step on my toes. Guess what? They step on my toes before they step on your toes because I have to study it all week long, and I have to wrestle every week with the question, am I obeying this? And that's a hard one. Some of this stuff's hard, like prayer. You know, am I struggling in prayer for, for the church as I should be? And the Bible's that way. In the final thing Paul wrote, 2 Timothy, final chapter, chapter 4, where he tells Timothy to preach the word. He he says, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all patience, because the time's going to come when people want to pile up teachers that tickle their ears, tell them what they want to hear, but you be faithful, preach the word. And so don't dodge the hard parts. And it's easy to go out and find a church that tells you what you want to hear, makes you feel good. But it's kind of like eating dessert all the time. You know, if you eat dessert all the time, you're not going to be healthy. God made it so that broccoli is not the greatest thing to eat, but it's good for you, okay? And you got to eat a healthy diet if you want to be healthy spiritually. And you need a church where, I hope you go to your doctor. He doesn't say, great to see you, hug you, love you, man. And he doesn't tell you the truth. You want a doctor who says, I'm concerned about this, and you need to change this. Thank you. He he has your best interest at heart. Secondly, a Christ-centered church is going to be a spiritually discerning church. 
and again, discernment is a rare quality today. I guarantee you this, if you begin to exercise spiritual discernment, you will be accused of being judgmental. It's going to happen. Um, you will be accused of being intolerant. <clears throat> it was in this church, and uh, I, I've been here 23 years. When I first came here, one of the elders told me that I was arrogant and judgmental because of a sermon I had in print. And the title of the sermon was, What the Bible Says About Abortion. Well, I thought that was a good title. So I asked him, well, what's the problem? Well, that's dogmatic, and you can't be dogmatic. And I said, really? I I can't say what the Bible says about abortion. He said, no, you can't say what the Bible says about anything. And I went, really? What do I do? Well, you can just say your opinion. And I said, well, then I need to resign, and we need to dissolve the church because, you know, my opinion, your opinion, we all have opinions, and the Bible is no longer our authority. And he insisted on that. And I tried to probe, and I said, well, do you mean the style that I need to present the truth with grace and kindness? No, that's not the issue. You just can't say it's the truth. And so he'd been sucked into this whole idea We've got to be tolerant of everything. And the Bible is not that way. Now, I agree. We need to be gracious. And even if it's a major doctrine, we need to be kind in how we correct. But there are key truths. And if you deny those truths, you're no longer a Christian. I don't know what you are, but you're not a Christian. Because if we deny the gospel, then... You know, we, we don't have Christianity. And so we need that. Otherwise, we're all going to be carried around, as Ephesians 4.14, Paul says, pastors and teachers are given to equip the saints. And he goes on and says, if they aren't teaching, then we'll be carried around by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and dis- deceitful scheming. He goes on to say, speaking the truth in love. That's the key, speaking the truth, but doing it in love. And then, so it's Bible-centered, a a Christ-centered church is Bible-centered, it's discerning. Thirdly, a Christ-centered church is growing to understand all the treasures of wisdom and understanding that are in Christ. Paul says that full assurance, I think he means of salvation, comes from understanding and knowing God's mystery, which is Christ. Now, some of you may have a version that says, of the Father and of Christ. That is not the best reading. It's it's really based on inferior uh, manuscripts. The best reading is, God's mystery is Christ himself. And Paul says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him couple of things to explain. When he calls Christ a mystery, he doesn't mean it's for the insider group, secret knowledge. In fact, that's what he's refuting. The false teacher said, we've got the mystery. Come to us. Mystery refers to something that was somewhat concealed in the Old Testament, and now it's made plain for all in the New. The Old Testament revealed Christ, but they weren't totally clear on 
the office, the purpose, the ministry of Christ. You see that with the apostles. They couldn't figure out how can Christ die on the cross? He told them repeatedly, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, and whew, went right by them. They didn't get it. Why? Because they were looking forward. It's kind of like when we read the Revelation. If you understand Revelation, you understand more than I do. I read it and I go, man, that's kind of a mystery. I don't get it all. I get the big idea. Jesus is coming bodily. You better be ready because he's going to crush all his enemies and he's going to reign. That's all clear. But there's a lot of the details that I think nobody is going to really understand until it happens. And then we'll all look back and go, why didn't I get that? Okay, so there's a mystery. The Old Testament, Christ is revealed, but when he came, voila, the curtain goes up and you go, oh, yeah, he had to suffer and then be raised again. And then he's coming back. I get it. I see it. So he's a mystery. Then he says um, that it's a treasure. Now, he doesn't mean... Again, that it's just a hidden secret for the few that know where to find the buried treasure. The buried treasure is in the Bible. And Paul is using a lot of uh, words here when he talks about the hidden um, treasure and so on from Proverbs chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And there Solomon is talking about wisdom and understanding and discernment. And he says this, If you seek her as silver... And search for her as, here's the word, hidden treasures. Then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. And so, yeah, some of the stuff in the Bible is hard to understand, but you got to dig. And as you dig for it, you go, oh, wow, that's neat. And you, you begin to discover the knowledge of God. So the point is, Christ is our all-sufficient treasure. Uh, he meets our every need. W.H. Griffith Thomas said, The only safeguard against error for the Christian is a full knowledge of Christ. So, a Christ-centered church is Bible-centered, discerning, uh, growing to understand all the treasures and so on that are in Christ. Fourthly, a Christ-centered church practices unity on essentials, essential biblical truth, and loving tolerance on non-essentials. Uh, Knit together, in verse uh, 2, sometimes means instructed, and some scholars argue for it here, uh, instructed together. But down in verse 19, he uses it about the joints and ligaments being knit together. And so I think that's what he means here. But you'll notice that the unity Paul is talking about, being knit together in love, is not divorced from knowledge. See, often in our day, unity, we throw aside knowledge, oh, and we get together and we all sing we are one in the Spirit. But are we? Are we? If we set aside knowledge, we don't have true unity because the gospel has to be centered. Um, And in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about the unity of the Spirit. That's true of everybody born again. But he goes on. And he says, we need to attain to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to the mature person in Christ. 
And that's something we grow to as we grow in knowledge. Now, there are core doctrines, as I've said, that if you give those away, you're no longer a Christian. The gospel, things related to the gospel. Those you fight for, you'll divide over, you, you take a stand on, you may have to die for and say, I hold to those without swerving, okay? Then, and here's where you need discernment, there are secondary doctrines that are important, but they aren't gospel. They aren't at the center. And so you got godly men and women who differ over these things. Prophecy, views on prophecy, views on baptism, views on the charismatic gifts, a lot of different things like that. Some of those are fairly important, but they aren't dividing Christian from non-Christian, okay? And those, I think we can debate in a friendly way. Uh, But at the end of the day, if we differ, we have to say, that's my brother in Christ. And I love him even though we differ. And uh, so it's that kind of discernment that we have to have. And then finally, a Christ-centered church, Paul says, is disciplined and stable in their faith in Christ. That's in verse 5. Good discipline is a military term, so is stability, and uh, points at a military unit that is tough in their fighting, and they've closed ranks. And Paul here is picturing the church as standing shield to shield so these false teachers cannot gain entrance. Um, Sam Storms comments on that word translated, good order, good discipline, He says, the word translated good order points to the well-ordered behavior of the Colossians. He has in mind lives that are aligned with biblical revelation, daily habits of life that reflect the values of Jesus, unwavering obedience to the will of God, no matter how unpopular or unsuccessful that may prove to be. That other word, stability, as you think about it, is the opposite of trendy or flashy or sensational. Stable churches aren't chasing after the latest fads, the latest church growth techniques, the latest this and that. May I say it, stable churches don't keep people hyped up with how soon is Jesus coming back? All that prophetic faldy roll it's just done to keep people hyped up. And, you know, the answer to the question, we don't know how soon Jesus is coming back because the Bible doesn't tell us. It just says, be ready. He's coming. And you get all hyped up with all this stuff. It's just to keep people pumped. Other churches, you know, are promoting the latest self-help techniques on this, that, and the other, and it's all a bunch of hype. May I say to you, stable churches are frankly kind of boring. You know, stability's kind of boring, isn't it? In some ways. In other ways, give me stable. Give me stable, okay? And the biblical gospel is the sure foundation. We want to be gospel-centered, and that's our foundation against spiritual deception. John MacArthur wrote a great book a few years ago called The Truth War. And in that book, he argues that faithfulness to Christ demands 
that we fight for the truth of the gospel, but he points out that the modern evangelical church is is swayed by this worldly emphasis on tolerance and so-called love, and it's become apathetic to the whole concept of truth. Um, Just as an example of that, there's a big hullabaloo right now because a professor at Wheaton College claimed that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. And she got put on leave. And the students there, many of them, are protesting, putting this professor on administrative leave while they try and sort through exactly what is she teaching. They're standing for truth. MacArthur, though, in his introduction to that book, states, church leaders are obsessed with style and methodology, losing interest in the glory of God and becoming grossly apathetic about truth and sound doctrine. And then a few pages later, he adds, what we desperately need today are shepherds according to God's heart who will feed believers with knowledge and understanding. And that's what Paul's arguing for in our text. The enemy has many servants out there trying to delude you. Many of them are in the fold, and they've got persuasive arguments, but you can avoid spiritual deception, Paul says, by being committed to a loving, Christ-centered church where his word is taught. Dear Father, I pray that you would help us to stay on track when these many winds of doctrine are blowing in our day, that this church would always be Uh, a loving church where we care genuinely about every person. I pray that we would be a Christ-centered church where the gospel is central and that that would outlive me by many decades in this church should Jesus tarry. I pray, Lord, that you would sweep our nation with revival, that Christians would get back to being founded on the Bible, and learning the truth of the Bible about Jesus. And I pray that this year would be a year of growth for us in knowing Christ. Lastly, Lord, I pray if anybody is here who doesn't know Jesus, that you would show them how without hope they are. That you would show them that they are cut off from you that they are cut off from your people, and should they die, they will face you in judgment. But then show them also, Lord, that Jesus came to offer salvation to every sinner who will call upon him. And I pray, Lord, that before this very day is over, any such people would put their trust in Jesus as their only Savior from sin and judgment and that this would be a year of growth in him for them as well. We ask it in his name. Amen.